Welcome to Encountering Beauty, a series of podcasts brought to you by Masterpiece London. I'm Thomas Marks, editor of Apollo magazine, and in these podcasts we'll be exploring the enduring relevance and resonance of what have long been some of the most revered and versatile materials that artists have had at their disposal. In each conversation I'll be joined by two art dealers who exhibit at the leading art fair that is Masterpiece London. Experts in slightly different artistic fields that nevertheless share particular materials between them. We'll explore everything from wood to marble and from ceramic to precious stones, discussing how artists have handled, worked and transformed these materials and why they're prized by collectors today. Today we'll be talking about pigment and the ingredients of paint. That is how a range of coloured substances, usually ground into powders and mixed with oil, water or another type of binder, have been the starting point of paintings, from prehistoric murals to pop art and beyond. We'll be discussing how far an understanding of pigment has been fundamental to the painting of the past, including how certain colours have been valued or venerated. And we'll explore what contemporary painters know or need to know about the materials that they use. I'm delighted to be joined by two specialists who will be grinding the colours for our canvas. Molly Dawkin, Head of Research and a Specialist in Old Master Paintings at Dickinson in London, and giving us a contemporary perspective, Neil Wenman, partner at Hauser & Worth. It's great to have both of you with me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Let me start by asking both of you separately, Molly perhaps first, how important an understanding of paint as a substance, of its ingredients, how it's made and its properties is to the field that you specialise in? I would say it's very important to all of the stages of our work at Dickinson. And that's everything from old masters through to modern and contemporary pieces. For instance, when we're doing our research, it's important to know what pigments would have been available to artists in different periods, or when we're talking to conservators and we need to know how to approach something to preserve it or restore it. We need to understand what it's made of. When we're talking to collectors, they're interested to know how something's been produced and especially in the case of an old master how it's maybe lasted for centuries and how it's perhaps changed over time so i would say it's a very important part of our business we'll definitely come back to how color changes over time and, and how that's a constituent of the pigments but neil in the contemporary art world that feeling of the understanding of paint for you is it something that you end up talking about in your daily work yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely agree with Molly on many of those points. The ingredients of paint is totally critical to the artist. It's, you know, if they're baking a cake, they need to know what's the ingredients in the cake for the type that they desire. And that's no different, really, from making a painting. So over the past sort of two decades of me visiting artist studios, one develops a knowledge of paint through them and how it behaves and it becomes a kind of talking point with you and the artist in the studio, learning the techniques they're developing, why they're developing those techniques, the references that they have. So it gives you an understanding of how they use the pigment in very different ways, different approaches with, for them, different meanings. I love the metaphor of the cake. And of course, on the whole, perhaps in museums, the public or in galleries or indeed collectors are people who are tasting that cake rather than baking that cake but as someone in between 
Have you ever tried to bake the cake yourself, Neil? No, I haven't. But I definitely feel like maybe one of the judges on Bake Off. No, I'm not joking. No, I think, you know, working with living artists, which, you know, most of the gallery artists we work with are, there is a great joy in making, not baking, making, seeing the work develop, seeing it evolving and their creativity changing. And that also ties back to the materials they're using and the colours they're using, and therefore the pigments. You know, we have two upcoming shows about to open, hopefully in London, now that we have uh, COVID lifting, hopefully in April, of Ellen Gallagher and Frank Bowling, two artists who specifically use paint, pigment, and other unusual materials on the canvas to really sort of push the definition of what they're trying to describe in their work. And Molly, talking of this cake shop, I mean, I suppose for you, there's a sense in which perhaps going to conservator studios and talking to conservator studios, you have that sense of the actual ingredients of paint and and trying to even find some sort of empathy with how those ingredients would have been used 300 years ago, 400, 500 years ago. Mm, Definitely. And I think that's a good point, because obviously most of the artists that we're dealing with at Dickinson are long dead. So we're not going to be able to ask them how something was made or what they were thinking or why they made the choices they did. So visiting a conservator is probably the next best step. And I always find it so illuminating when I can see something that's been, you know, maybe stripped back and built back up in the areas that need to be touching to see how the process works. Well, let me go back with both of you and think perhaps earlier in your careers to a painter or an exhibition or a painting that first really intrigued you in thinking about the materials of painting rather than the images that perhaps you see on paintings or on canvases. Molly, is there a painter who you really feel that that made you really engage with materiality of paint? One that really springs to mind was the 1999 John Singer Sargent retrospective at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which I saw when I was a student. And it was an incredible show. And I remember being especially struck by the portraits of women and girls in white dresses, because when you looked more closely, you could see that most of the dress wasn't actually painted white. They were shades of brown or gray or blue or lavender. But altogether, it gave the impression of this really pure white fabric. And I just remember being so struck with how, you know, it was like a magic trick to see him be able to do this. So that that one really stayed with me. And Neil, what about for you? I think for me as a student, it was definitely the discovery of Eve Klein and Eve Klein Blue. And that particular moment when an artist and a pigment were joined historically And I guess the reduction of the work right down just to the colour alone was something that I guess was a sort of turning point in my understanding of how pigment could be used by an artist. And then I guess coming back much more recently, I look at the bowling show at Tate Britain even in 2019, which was before we worked with Frank. And it was very interesting to see unusual use of pigment and paint and acrylic and gel in the way in which he constructed the paintings and the surfaces, combining kind of fluorescence and glitters and also incorporating pieces of rope and plastic objects into the surface. And so on a kind of much more contemporary 
reference. I think that, you know, even today, artists are still very much looking at pouring, dripping, the consistency of the paint, the washing of paint, and that therefore relates all straight back to pigment. It relates back, doesn't it? Because if we get slightly technical, the different viscosities of paint are sometimes dependent on the actual pigment, the colour or or the material used to create the colour that is mixed with the binder. So clearly you can mix different types of pigments with glue or with lime in fresco painting or with bits of egg, whether with the yolk or the white in tempera painting. But artists who have had some sort of feeling for the longevity or the durability of their work have had to have some kind of understanding of of how far these these different materials will withstand over time. Molly, that's something I suppose that isn't always talked about in the more public discussion of art. It's not something that we see a lot of in museums and galleries. Do you feel that sometimes those material qualities get overlooked when people are discussing art, painting in particular? Absolutely, I think they definitely can. When you're talking about a painting, you're often talking about the subject or the artist or the history of the painting. You might even talk about the colors in it. But once you start to get into the actual sort of physical material qualities, once you get past the most basic level, you know, canvas versus panel or oils versus watercolors, you almost start to run out of vocabulary for how to describe what it feels like. I mean, I'm struggling even now. In this past year, when we've all been relying so heavily on images because there's nothing else, we can't have art fairs and we can't all get together. It's a great thing to be able to offer our collectors these virtual viewing rooms and virtual art fairs, but it's never going to be a substitute for actually standing in front of something. If it were, everyone would buy a poster and we'd all be out of business, right? But, you know, if you're standing in front of something, you can see the texture of the surface, if you're looking at it straight on versus from an angle, you can look at it under natural light, you can see how it looks under artificial light. So you can really appreciate the surface of something and the changing qualities of something much better in person than you ever could in an image. So yes, I do think that that can get lost. I think the people who sometimes have the vocabulary for this or often have the vocabulary for this are of course, contemporary artists and contemporary painters. I've learned more about historical painting from walking around galleries with painters than perhaps from reading about painting and painting technique in books. Neil, that must be something that ties in with your line of of work. Absolutely, yeah. No, I mean, one learns a huge amount from the artists themselves. I think Molly's point is 100% correct that you can't be standing in front of the physical picture itself We've done so much digital over the last 12 months that it really is only a kind of poor substitute for the real thing. And I think perhaps because I'm focused more with living artists, there is a great tendency when you're with the work to want to describe, again, the process of making. So you tend to kind of move up to the surface, you're talking about the brushstroke, you're imagining the kind of frustration or the joy in the artist's hand and so on. So I think that the materiality is not so overlooked, perhaps in the contemporary, because you can talk about the artist as a living being and their emotion, and you can't just sort of have conjecture over something that happened long ago. 
I suppose the interesting thing for me is that I go into the National Gallery if I go and look at the 19th century paintings with a painter who is working today. It almost that discussion makes a historical painter alive again because the questions are always how did Manet do that rather than oh isn't that an amazing effect it's taking it back to how did he lay those paints on what what's the ground here what's the binder how many layers of paint or glazes are being used in any painting and that's something that we perhaps have a conversation that many of us have forgotten how to have or or never found ourselves fluent in yeah and with old masters i would say that in addition to conservation the other sort of near substitute we have are unfinished paintings because then you can see the process and you can say, okay, he's gotten this far and this part is left to come, or maybe this part of the, the face is finished and the costume isn't. So you can sort of try to reconstruct the process, but again, it's it's not the same as being able to ask someone about the process. Molly, in terms of thinking of old master paintings and, and even medieval paintings and gold ground paintings, how important is it for you to know about the sources of pigments? Does that affect your interpretation of paintings? I mean, I'm thinking about how ultramarine was made is probably the most famous example and the value of a material like lapis lazuli. Yeah, I think that's that's also very valuable to know because if we're looking at artworks, you know, modern artworks as a modern audience, we might have personal preferences for more blue or more red or something like that, but we're not going to be thinking that makes it more or less valuable. Whereas if we're talking about something like ultramarine that had to be made from this very expensive imported lapis lazuli, you know that the artists were using this for only the most important and precious details, like the robe of the Virgin Mary, because it was so expensive and valuable. Or if you're looking at something like that wonderful Bacchus and Ariadne by Titian in the National Gallery, which isn't even a religious painting, but it's basically half painted with ultramarine between the sky and the sea and the costumes. That was an incredibly sort of a show-offy thing to do. And a contemporary audience would have looked at that and thought, oh my God, not only is it beautiful, but it's obviously incredibly expensive, which really speaks to the wealth of the patron, Alfonso d'Este, the Duke of Ferrara. So there are definitely elements of the materials that, that it makes it more sort of come alive if you know these details. I suppose it's also a question of what was available, which is, is important to know in terms of thinking of value and how the availability of certain pigments might inform a whole aesthetic of a school of painting or not. Yeah, absolutely. And, and knowing that different pigments were more or less difficult to come by or to manufacture when you're talking about synthetic pigments. And when something new was discovered or invented, as was, for instance, mauve during the Impressionist period, which was a, an accidental discovery. And it really took off. And you see Monet using it and Renoir using it, and it appears all over the place. And the critics are talking about something like violeta mania because they're so obsessed with this new color. So it gives you a better understanding of why something was popular or why it was chosen. I suppose linked to that is the fact that some of these colors are quite stable and some of them are less stable and different pigments are more stable or the colors are faster depending on what they've been mixed with so any pigment has to be mixed to a binder to be attached to a painting unless we're dyeing canvases or fabrics and it's interesting to think about whether painters in the past had the sense of 
what the future of the colours they were using would be. Let me come back to Neil, though, on that point. When you're talking to contemporary artists, to painters working today, do you feel they have a sense of, hang on, this painter is actually going to darken or lighten in two months' time or in five years' time or in a hundred years' time? I think it's something that they do consider at the point of making, but I don't think that probably many living artists are thinking a hundred years ahead, to be honest. They're probably more consumed with their emotions of the day. And I think that in a way, I like all the, the references to the kind of preciousness of the pigment itself and what it represented in its rarity, which I don't think is so relevant in contemporary today because obviously pigment is very widely available in lots of different forms. However, I think the idea of technology and application of pigment are things that are more of interest to, to a living artist. And I can cite an example where the American artist David Smith, who's recognised really as a sculptor, welding his found pieces of steel together in his studio in Bolton Landing in upstate New York, would often lay the pieces on the floor. And when the welding sprayed, it would leave shadows as the works were lifted up off the studio floor. And what became interesting for David was that in the mid-50s, there was the invention of the aerosol can. And that was an industrial process for car manufacturing in America. But David saw it as absolutely an artistic tool and in a way in which he could apply pigment, which allowed him then to create what later became known as his monumental spray paintings, which were all made using the new aerosol can in the late 1950s. So in the case of him in particular, an artist so preoccupied with industrial processes, it wasn't so much the pigment itself, it was more the ability to apply it that I think was fascinating for him. And in a contemporary setting, I could also maybe mention the work of Avery Singer, who is an artist in her early 30s, who actually initially uses technology and binary language and computers to make the image, which is then industrially printed onto canvas and then applied with extra layers and layers by hand. But the form making, the kind of initial form making is actually done in the computer itself. So again, it's the technology and the application of, of ink and then paint on top that allows her to, to kind of express herself I suppose there was a great shift in the 19th century with the invention of the, the paint tube in, in the 1840s. I, I wonder if that's a sort of, if you were to generalise a moment when the value of particular pigments as powders to be mixed with liquid binders shifted and, and suddenly it was about how you could move paint around or how portable it was, how you were going to apply it. I mean, of course, there have been other technological developments in that regard. Molly, Dickinson deals in modern and, and impressionist paintings as well. I mean, do, do you sense that there's a, a sort of different feeling for what paint means when, when you move into the 19th century? Yeah, there seems to be. In a lot of the old masters that we're looking at, the artist was trying to create an illusion of something that really existed. And so they're really trying to efface the brushwork so that it's almost invisible, so that it looks as though something is, is sort of magically there. 
Whereas when you're looking at impressionist painting, there's so much of it that is dependent on the texture and the actual materiality of the paint. So, you know, seeing something in person and even even touching the surface and feeling the impasto, there's so much more about the paint itself as an element and the brush strokes being, you know, something to be celebrated and used as opposed to made invisible. So there definitely was, I think, a difference in sort of the manner and also the meaning of the paint. Neil, you say very interesting things about the methods of application of paint, but are there any artists that you've worked with or simply working today for whom the actual sources of the materials of paint have a meaning themselves? I'm thinking obviously there some organic materials are used to create paints, things like insects uh, being through various stages ground up to create paintings, so or things that are inorganic or things that are manufactured through types of factory processes and obviously the labor involved in that. With any of the artists you work with, do any of these things become part of the story of the work they're making? Absolutely, yeah, definitely they do. I'm thinking of examples like where an artist uses perhaps a different material, but for its colour. And I'm thinking maybe of someone like Rashi Johnson, who uses shea butter in his work, and that's for the colour of the yellow butter. It is a wax-based material and it does age over time. And in fact, the yellow becomes more and more to white. And that's in the work and it's deliberate. So the reason he uses shea butter is because it is a cosmetic material used on black skin. And that is referencing the work and, and his practice but he also enjoys it for the kind of unusual nature of that material, the fact that it's not an artistic material, it's a cosmetic one, and the fact that it does change over time. So I guess that's the sort of example. But then, oddly, Rashid also has registered his own colour during the lockdown period in 2020 called Anxious Red. And all the works he made during that period were made using anxious red, which was in the form of an oil crayon, big fat oil crayon that he put straight onto the canvas. So, you know, he's very much someone who's thinking about materiality. What does it mean? How can it communicate his interests, whether that be a kind of historic socio position or something about the very moment he's working in the COVID lockdown? So this is interesting. There's the suggestion that, albeit with different purposes and intentions, that there is some continuity between a feeling for materials in paintings, how how they come in and out of focus, uh, how they might have done in, that in the 16th century and how they might do that in the 21st century. You can see the image, you can value the image, but you can also close read materials and, and they're in and out of our minds as we're looking. I mean, that's one of the things that makes painting different from photography, say, isn't it, Neil? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are very conscious decisions, I think, by the artist to embed within the work meaning. And that could be contrary to what the image looks like. So I'm thinking of also very avant-garde experimental artists like Paul McCarthy, who incorporates even, you know, human feces into paintings 
And, you know, it's about the destruction of the painting. It's about action. It's about kind of anger, frustration. We have very famous works in contemporary art, modern art history, like the urine paintings, you know. So the material was, was, was the work, really, as much as the image it created. It's ironic that we often think more of these images, but then we have, at least for the last year, been tied to images rather than surfaces and what's behind the surfaces. Molly, thinking about collectors, which I suppose includes museum collectors, but, but perhaps particularly private collectors, what, what do they need to know about pigment? What type of questions should they ask when they are looking at an old master painting and, and thinking about its colours? I think one thing to keep in mind is that the way something looks now to us is very likely not the way it looked centuries ago when it was first painted. And that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it now or appreciate it now or like the way it looks now, but it can sometimes be hard to wrap your head around the fact that maybe it looked completely different to a contemporary audience. So for instance, if you're, you're talking about portraits by Sir Joshua Reynolds, one of the, the flesh tones that he used early in his career was this great word fugitive. It's a fugitive pigment if it doesn't hang around. And this one was so unstable, this red lake, that it started to fade after just a few years. So if collectors are looking at Reynolds portraits, you're going to get some from the early period that look very ghostly. And I think people wonder, well, you know, is this meant to be a memento mori? Why is this person looking so ghostly? And it's interesting to learn why that is, it's the fact that you're seeing the underlayer, you're not seeing the flesh tones. So I think out of a, a sort of historical curiosity factor and also, you know, taking into, into mind the value of something is going to depend in part on its condition. So you want to understand what sort of a state something is in, in order to understand what a fair price for it is. And also when, when it comes to issues of conservation, I think collectors really want to know okay, so this is the state that something is in now, but how fragile is it? And what do I need to do to preserve it for future generations? I'm, I'm fascinated by what you say about the aesthetic of certain Reynolds portraits, because of course, for certain collectors, types of damage might be an aesthetic in their own right. You know, it's like when we think about buildings, ruins are attractive, even if they aren't things that we would necessarily want to live in. But of course, for the art historian, it's vital to know what something might have looked like or to conjecture what it might have looked like and what it might look like in the future. Neil, for contemporary collectors, are they asking similar questions about what's going to happen to the condition of this work in the next 10, 20 years? Absolutely, they are. And I think conservation, knowledge of conservation couldn't be more critical as artworks are being made with more and more unusual materials, fragile materials, you know, materials that will definitely deteriorate over time, which is part of the work itself. These guidelines and parameters are, are more and more important when collecting. I think there's also perhaps, you know, with the birth of conceptual art and the separation of idea and object, it allows the object to often be remade or elements of it to be, you know, replaced. And that's allowed within the work. And it's also stipulated by the artist it can happen in the future. So, you know, most of the more technical sculptural installations, perhaps that we sell with these kind of elements in them, come with a pretty thick installation manual that tells you which elements can be replaced 
also with technology changing, certain things that are currently unstable may not be in the future, but this kind of pulls slightly away from from the picture plane and, and the canvas. And I suppose though we're not that far away from the canvas because fundamentally that's a type of question that conservators have to ask Molly, whether whether or not elements of paintings that have been disappeared or, or, or been lost or damaged can or should be replaced. And that's something that I suppose an art gallery dealing in historic paintings has to think about too. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that it's a black and white answer either. I mean, nobody's going to suggest that you overpaint an old master to make it look exactly as it did the day it was painted. But I don't think there are many people who who would want to strip back all of the restoration and, and leave it on the wall with, you know, maybe a crack or a hole or a mark missing. There's got to be some sort of a middle ground in terms of presenting it in its best possible light in its current state of its existence. So you need to make sure that you find and work with a conservator who can be very sensitive to that and whose abilities and talents you trust. Well, let's leave it there on that notion of trusting in paint, however cunning it may be as it changes colour in time. On that note, let me say thank you very much to Molly Dawkin and Neil Wenman for sharing their expertise. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Encountering Beauty, a podcast brought to you by Masterpiece London. Masterpiece Online takes place from the 23rd to the 27th of June, and the fair will return to the Royal Hospital Chelsea in the summer of 2022. Head to www.masterpiecefair.com for more information.